Yeah, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to uh, share the gospel with you today and uh, share God's word with you. I am uh, excited to get back into uh, just teaching you God's word. It's been a really a kind of a slow start for me over uh, uh, the year 2019. I actually I looked at the calendar. I realized that I have preached twice uh, since the beginning of the year. That's been due to uh, a crazy travel schedule, uh, visiting my son down in Ecuador, uh, an untimely winter uh, snowstorm that uh, knocked me out of preaching for the week, uh, being consumed with getting this uh, building completed. And, uh, you know, as I started thinking about this, I, I've been worried that, that our church administrator, Pat, would start docking my pay for lack of uh, preaching work. But uh, I, I look in there every uh, 15 days or so, and he continues to pay me. So he has been uh, been gracious to me. Uh, but we're, we're now on a regular schedule, and I'm excited about that. I'll be, uh, be preaching uh, at least every other week. Uh, Pastor Ben will be preaching most of the other weekends, and uh, occasionally you'll, you'll see Mike Bongo and Steve Bateman and, and James Axel and, and Sean Shea along the way. Uh, since I was gone uh, I figured we might as well just kind of jump uh, headfirst into to some uh, kind of uh, serious theological uh, issues. We're, we're going to be talking about some things that are going to grab the attention of, of many of you. Uh, the topics that we're going to spend time on today as we uh, begin our, our uh, study through the, the lives of Abraham's children uh, is on the topic of, of God's sovereignty and, and grace, and especially how they impact the, the manner in which people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, God's sovereignty and grace, they are two beautiful doctrines of Christianity, uh, which bring with them a, a whole lot of hope, but uh, they also are doctrines which get misused and abused. And so it's my prayer that, that today I'm going to be able to, to faithfully and, and humbly communicate uh, my understanding of God's Word as it relates to this. Uh, I'm praying that, that all of you will have uh, soft hearts and, and open minds to uh, be able to uh, just examine what God's Word actually uh, says. So that's what we're going to do. If you have a Bible with you, open up to uh, Genesis chapter 25. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26 is where we're at today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles uh, scattered around the room, uh, on the tables, and uh, you'll also, uh, not in the beginning part, but throughout the message, you'll see some of the verses up on the screen. Uh, Genesis 25, verses 12 to 26, and if you're able to stand, if you would do so uh, in honor of God's word, please. These are the <clears throat> excuse me these are the generations of Ishmael Abraham's son whom Hagar the Egyptian Sarah's servant bore to Abraham These are the names of the sons of Ishmael named in order of their birth Nebaioth uh, the firstborn of Ishmael Kedar Adbed Mibsam Mishma Duma Massa Hadad Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedadma. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last 
and he died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilath to Shur, which is opposite of Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And he settled over against all his kinsmen. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, last week, <clears throat> Pastor Ben did a, an absolutely superb job of summarizing the life of Abraham. Uh, he was given a, a, a huge task, and I thought that he did it in an extremely uh, uh, theologically correct and, and really creative manner. And he set the, the stage beautifully for what is going to probably be between a, an 18-month and a 20-month-long study through the life of Abraham's descendants. Uh, specifically, we're going to be looking at Abraham's son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and his great-grandson Joseph. And as Pastor Ben had shared, uh, Abraham was 75 years of age uh, when he was called by God to leave his, his father, his family home, and travel to the land that God would show him. Now, now following God to a, a place that, that you're unaware of and following a God that you have just actually met is pretty daunting uh, in the first place, let alone being an old dude. Now, my dad is 75 years old, and... Uh, so I know what old is. I know what old looks like. Uh, I know what old does. And I know how old travels. And take it from me, it is not a pretty sight. Uh -huh. over, the, over the winter months, uh, I have the, the, the privilege of traveling with my dad, uh, typically out to West Virginia or to uh, Ohio to, to watch my, my son coach uh, his girls' basketball team out there at Cedarville University, and uh, hanging out with my dad, it's insane. I mean, the guy does crazy stuff. He says crazy stuff, stuff that's going to get me beat up sometime. Uh, he, the things he does at times, I'm wondering, Dad, we could get arrested for doing this. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I kind of get old, and uh, Abraham, he, he was old, and I'm sure that he probably did things that my dad perhaps did. And God didn't just tell Abraham to go on a journey. He also told Abraham that he's going to be the father of, of this great nation. And of course, this was a, was a huge problem uh, because 
not only was Abraham old, so was his wife Sarah. At the time that God appeared to, to Abraham, whose name was Abram at the time, Sarah, whose name was Sarai, was 65 years old. And to make matters worse, uh, for all of those 65 years, she had been unable to uh, bear children. So you have to think about the amount of trust that Abraham and Sarah must have had towards God in order to go on this journey and to believe the things that they believed. But that trust, it gets tested because uh, 11 years pass and Abraham has done exactly what God has asked him to do. And there is no error. So Sarah, his wife, she comes up with what she thinks is a a brilliant idea. She, she thinks that there's probably another way that, that Abraham can have a child. And, and so she, she talks her husband into uh, having sexual relations with, with Hagar, her uh, Egyptian servant, in hopes that Hagar would become pregnant with Abraham's child. And, and basically what you have is a, a surrogate pregnancy going on here without the 21st century technology is, is where we're at. And uh, given his wife's permission, uh, Abraham engages in this relationship with Hagar, and uh, Hagar gets pregnant and gives Abraham this long-awaited son whose name is Ishmael. And Abraham's happy, and Hagar's happy, Sarah not so much. And like many times... uh, When God doesn't work as quickly as we want him to work, we take things into our own hands, and what initially seems like a good idea turns out to be a a really bad idea. And and some of us can can relate to that. There have been times that that we grew tired of waiting on God. And so uh, we began thinking, "I, I better get this thing moving and so in the midst of our impatience, we come up with, with seemingly brilliant ideas that, that the moment then that we execute them, we're like, why in the world did I just do that? I can remember uh, a time uh, many years ago where uh, I grew impatient about something. It wasn't actually waiting on, on God. It, it, was, it was waiting to, to get something that, that I wanted, but I, I didn't have enough money to get it. And the thing that I wanted was, uh, was a weight bench. Uh, we had a, a couple uh, dumbbells at home, and, and I wanted to, you know, get this uh, carefully sculpted body uh, more carefully sculpted. Yeah, and, uh, but I didn't have a weight bench. So uh, rather than waiting until I had enough money, I, I began to look around the house to find an alternative for the weight bench. And uh, after a time of searching, I, I noticed uh, Kathy's ironing board in the closet. And uh, its legs could be adjusted to, to varying heights. And, and so I realized that I could get it, you know, down to like the height of, of a weight bench. And so I pulled the thing out of the closet and I lowered it down to, to the perfect height. And I, I grabbed the, those uh, two 10-pound uh, dumbbells that, you know, are a struggle for me. And uh, I put my full weight on that board. And that thing crashed to the ground. Three dumbbells went down, two by York, one by Mike and Dolly Leonzo. And uh, needless to say, my wife was highly unimpressed. Uh, Now, not only didn't we have a weight bench, she didn't have an ironing board. And it goes to show you that you can have seven years of post-high school education, and that doesn't do you any good whatsoever. Uh, 
Well, back to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Another 12 years pass. Abraham is now 99 years old. And God reappears and, and tells Abraham that his wife Sarah, who, by the way, now is 90 years old, is going to bear a son. And it will be through Sarah and Abraham's son that this great nation would come into reality. And so just as God promised, Sarah miraculously has a baby, and they name him Isaac. And at this point, you would think that everything is going to be perfect. Uh, God has uh, fulfilled his promise to give Abraham an heir. Uh, Sarah now has this long-awaited baby. But things are far from perfect, because despite having a child, Sarah is jealous of Hagar and Ishmael, and and so she orders her husband Abraham to to cast the two of them out into the desert. Now, Abraham is not impressed with his wife's suggestion. After all, Ishmael is his son. He loves him, but he loves Sarah more, so he casts Ishmael and his mom from his home basically to die in the desert. And it's this point that that God shows up and, and, and promises to to Hagar and to Ishmael that they will not die, and ultimately that that Ishmael will, he himself, have a great nation. And so that's the backstory that brings us here to the 25th chapter of Genesis. And in verses 12 to 18, uh, which simply provide a genealogy of Ishmael's descendants, we learn a, a fundamental truth about God's sovereignty, and this is the truth, that God's sovereignty means that God always, 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 always fulfills his promises. Now the question is, what in the world is God's sovereignty? Uh, In order to find that answer, uh, I go to my my go-to theologian, Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem defines God's sovereignty this way. He says, God's sovereignty is his exercise of rule as king over his creation. Now what the Bible teaches us is is that that God is all-powerful, that that whatever he decides to do, he has the power to pull it off. And the the theological term, the big theological word for that is is, uh, uh, omnipotence. He is all-powerful. And here are just a few examples from the scriptures where we get this concept. The prophet Jeremiah declares, all Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. If God has made the the heavens and the the earth, he certainly possesses the power to to protect a a, a servant woman and her child uh, in the midst of a desert and turn that son into a great nation. Uh, Jesus' mother discovered the sovereignty of God when the angel Gabriel came to her to tell her that she was pregnant even though she was a virgin. In the process of, of telling her this, she, she also told her that, that uh, Mary's relative Elizabeth, who, was, was, who had been barren before and was in her old age, had become pregnant with a child. And the angel looks at Mary and says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Jesus himself speaks of God's omnipotence, his sovereignty, when he encounters the the rich young ruler, and this young man comes to him and says, you know, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, you need to, to 
do the Ten Commandments. And the guy says, I fulfilled all the Ten Commandments. Jesus tells the young guy, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And we all know the, the young man leaves sad. And, and his disciples are all watching this, and they're blown away. And Jesus says to them, and again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You see, God's Sovereignty means that God is powerful enough to do anything that he desires. However, his desires are always constrained by the balance of all of his other attributes. You see, because God is truth, even though he is all-powerful, God cannot lie. And because God is holy, even though he is all-powerful, he cannot sin. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 25, verses 12 to 18, is God's sovereignty working out in Ishmael's life. Way back in Genesis 21, God promised Ishmael that he would become a great nation, and God did that just for Ishmael. Ishmael had 12 sons who become the primary leaders of the, the tribes of Arabia, and it's from these sons that the religion of Islam finds its roots. And this is just one of countless examples in both the Old and the New Testament of God using his infinite power to accomplish his perfect will. And that, brothers and sisters, should be a great comfort to you and to me. You see, the fact that, that God is all-powerful and that when he decrees something, he accomplishes that something makes all of the difference in the world. So when God says in Psalm 103 that he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Guys, we can count on that. We can count that the God of the universe possesses not only the desires, but also the ability to remove the penalty of sin for those who love and trust him. And when Jesus says in John 4, 16, that I am the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. In our pluralistic, or we can count on that. We can trust that, that, that Jesus is alone, the only way to God the Father. And in this pluralistic world that we live in, a, a world that, that rejects absolutes, a, a world that believes anything and everything, a, a world that yet prides itself on lo logic, that claims that there are many ways to God, yet ignores the fact that those many ways are all completely contradictory to one another. In that kind of world, Jesus stands alone as a bright light in a, in a sea of darkness, proclaiming that he is the only way to God. And we can count on that. And when God says in Romans 10, 9, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it was with the heart that one believes and is justified, and with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We can count on that. We can count that when we repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in Jesus, that that God will ensure that nothing will separate us from his love. And when Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We can count on that too. You see, God's sovereignty means that he fulfills all of his promises, even the promises that he makes to those who don't love him and who reject him. But there's a second aspect of God's sovereignty that we learn from Genesis 25. It's tucked away between the lines of verses 19 to 21. Let me read you those verses. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethul, the Aramean, and of Padan, Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. You see, the second thing that that we learn as we read between the lines is this, that God's sovereignty means that God works based on his own schedule. He doesn't work based on our schedule. He works based on his own schedule. Let me explain this. This is what we know about Isaac. We know that, that a, the great nation that God had promised uh, Abraham was to go through the, the line of Isaac, not through Ishmael. And we know that Isaac was 40 years old when he married his wife, Rebekah. And we also know from uh, Jewish rabbinical teaching uh, from the ancient days that, that the minimum age for a Hebrew boy to marry was 18 years old. And if he wasn't married by the time he was 20 years old, he was considered cursed. So you got to ask yourself, what in the world is going through Isaac's mind from the age of 18 until he was married at the age of 40? As he looks at his brother Ishmael's life and sees it overflowing with 12 kids. Isaac had to be like, God, what's up with this? You you have promised that this great nation that my my father was to have was was to, to flow through me, but I have no children. I'm not even married. And worse yet, the religious leaders, they consider me to, to be cursed. How can I possibly trust that you do the things that you say you will do? But it gets worse. After Isaac marries, we're told that Rebekah is unable to bear children. And it takes another 20 years before she ultimately conceives and has a child. So think about that. For 40 years, for many of you, that, that, that's the entirety of your life right now. For, for 40 years, Isaac watched his older half-brother prosper while the promises that God made to him went unanswered. 40 years, you guys, that's a long time. 
Can you imagine the anger and the doubt and the confusion, the frustration? Can you imagine what Isaac must have felt living with all of this waiting for God to ultimately come through? And no doubt, I imagine some of you don't need to imagine. Instead, you have been living in the midst of God's delay. You've been waiting for a spouse, and God hasn't provided. You've been trying to conceive a child, and God hasn't come through. You've been laboring under a difficult job, waking up every morning praying, God, please let this interview happen. Please let them call me back from this resume. Please, God, do this. Please, God, do that. And, and, and nothing happens. And God hasn't provided. You've been begging God to, to free you from an addiction or a struggle or an illness. And God hasn't provided. You've been struggling in a disappointing relationship. Your husband or your wife is not the spouse that you expected them to be. Your kids have left you down. And God hasn't provided. You name the struggle, someone in this room probably is laboring under it, waiting for God to move, and God hasn't provided. So you understand what Isaac was going through. And as you struggle waiting for God to, to act, I would encourage you to consider that, that perhaps God is doing for you that which God was doing for Isaac. That perhaps in the midst of the waiting, God is teaching you patience. Perhaps he's testing your faith. Perhaps he's expanding your trust. You see, God's sovereignty means that God always works on his schedule and not ours. In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet complains to God about God's failure to do anything about the evil that surrounds Habakkuk and his community. He cries out to God, why do you idly uh, look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And this is how God responds. It says, and the Lord answered Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits it's appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. You see, at times, God seems slow in fulfilling his promises, but he faithfully fills them in his time. Similarly, in 2 Peter, Jesus' best friend reflects on those who, who doubt God, who say, where is the promise of, of his coming return? For ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, in other words, since all of these Christians have died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And what Peter is talking about is he, he's talking about these people who, who ridiculed the Christians who say, Jesus uh, lived and died and rose again and he's coming back in glory. Well, if that's what you say, where in the world is he? When is he going to return? Nothing has changed for years. If he's supposed to come back and make things right, why the delay? And this is how Peter responds. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years 
and a thousand years as is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, brothers and sisters, God doesn't operate based on our schedule. And when he delays, it's not because of a lack of love. Rather, he's up to something behind the scenes, something that is ultimately in our best interest and in the best interest of others. All the while, he is waiting for just the right time. And perhaps this is best seen in Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul, after talking about what... uh, about how we're made right with God through faith in Jesus and how we're to rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and that hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts. This is what Paul then says. For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time in human history, not one second too late, not one second too early, Jesus Christ came to this earth. And he lived, and he died, and he rose again so that you and I might have eternal life in and through him. You see, God's timing is perfect, and we should be very, very careful when we are tempted to try to rush his schedule. You know what's really cool about this? Isaac's dad, Abraham, they rushed God's schedule. And that's how Isaac ended up with his half-brother, Ishmael. But Isaac learned something from his dad, And while Isaac's wife was barren too, he did something completely different. In verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. You see, while God delayed, rather than trying to manipulate God's plan, Isaac instead turned to God in prayer. And God answered that prayer by graciously allowing his wife, Rebecca, to become pregnant with not just one, but two kids. And this brings us to the next thing that we learn about God's sovereignty. Look at verses 22 to 26. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. Folks, what we learn from that passage right there is that God's sovereignty means that divine grace trumps human fairness. Let me say that again. 
God's sovereignty means that divine grace trumps human fairness. Now this is perhaps the hardest truth to embrace as it relates to God's sovereignty. The Bible tells us that inside of Rebekah's womb, there was a war. In verse 22, the Hebrew word that is actually translated uh, struggled, it actually means to abuse or to crush. You see, basically what's going inside on inside of, of Rebecca's womb is there's an MMA match going on in there. And, and these two unborn children are beating each other all through her pregnancy. I mean, she's probably looking down at her, her, her belly, and she's seeing feet and elbows and arms popping out left and right. I mean, it's kind of like uh, the freaky alien movie, you know, that you saw that freaked me out when I was a kid, you know? So this is so bad what's going on inside of Rebecca. She's like, why is this happening to me? What is going No one else has this problem. I'm like self-destructing from the inside out. And so she prays to God, and God says this, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, as in many cultures, the firstborn, especially the firstborn son, typically holds a, a position of, of, of prominence in the family. He's primary. Uh, for example, consider uh, the, you know, Prince Charles's sons, William and Harry. You know, William is the firstborn. He is the heir to the British throne. Harry is just like an afterthought. I, I mean, you know, Prince William gets all the stuff. Harry gets like, you know, a little bungalow castle. He doesn't get all of, of the stuff. And such it was in ancient Israel. The firstborn son was, was everything. But not in this case. For some reason, God decides that Esau, the firstborn, should serve the younger. And it's this point, man, we're, the, the yellow flag's coming out. People are, you know, penalty, foul, technical. This is, this, is, this is not right. It doesn't seem fair. If the cultural norm is that the firstborn is to be primary, then why would God declare that the secondborn, the younger, would be primary? And the answer is found in perhaps the most beautiful word in the entirety of Scripture. It's the word grace. Grace means unmerited favor. It means that God gives you something that you do not deserve. And grace, it's how God works. God doesn't work based on merit. He works based on grace. Now, grace is not how our culture operates, folks. And we all understand that. Our culture is a merit-based culture, not a grace-based culture. We believe we need to earn what we receive. When we go to work and, and we work hard, and we expect to be rewarded with a, with a fair wage. We, we, we respect that occasionally we'll get a, a promotion or a raise. 
when we're, we're on a sports team and, and we practice hard and we show up before practice and work out and then we work hard during practice and then we stay afterwards and hang out with a trainer and train after practice and we're doing all the things the coach wants us to do and we're performing at a very high level, we expect to be on the starting team. When we work hard as a parent and we love our kids, we expect our kids to be thankful. And this ultimately, it translates into how we view God. And we think that we need to work hard to obey God, and when we do, we expect him to give us eternity. And now we all know that when we don't receive what we think that we have earned, we believe that we've been unfairly treated. And to understand what is actually happening here in Genesis chapter 25, we need to turn to one of the most difficult chapters in the entirety of the Bible because it serves as a direct commentary on what we just read in Genesis chapter 25. And that's the book of Romans, the ninth chapter. <clears throat> In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul explains exactly what was happening in Rebecca's womb and what ultimately happened to the unborn twins. Look at Romans 9, 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is, is speaking to to, to his Jewish friends. And, and, and he's, he's going to tell them something extremely difficult for them to hear. He says, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You see, in these verses, the Apostle Paul is explaining to his Jewish readers that just because you're a Jew biologically, doesn't mean that you are a child of God. You see, the Jewish people believed that because they, they were the physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac, that, that God had to accept them into heaven when they die. And Paul is simply telling them, guys, ladies, this is not the case. Look what he says starting in verse 8 to 13. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, 
about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done neither good or nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, there it is. The doctrine of election. Loved by many, despised by some. And what is election? Again, I'd point you to the definition by Wayne Grudem. He says, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. In other words, you and I have the opportunity to become sons and daughters not because of what we have done, but rather because of what God has done. And God uses Esau and Jacob as an illustration of election. You see, according to that culture, Esau deserved the privileges of being the firstborn. He was the natural choice because he was the first one out of the womb. But he was more than that. He was actually his father Isaac's choice. But he wasn't God's choice. God's choice was Jacob. Jacob didn't deserve it. Jacob didn't earn it. Jacob simply received the privilege of being in the direct line of the Messiah because that is what God wanted. Now that's hard to process. That's difficult to take in. And it's especially hard to process when you read verse 13. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Everything in the body of any human being that is even close to having a heart screams, that is not fair. That's what we think. That is not fair. And God knew that would be our response. And so he continues in verse 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. 
Notice what the central theme of those verses is. Do you see it? It's God's mercy. That's the central theme. And brothers and sisters, we need to be extremely careful what we ask for. You see, you and I, we don't want fairness from God. And you and I, we don't want God's justice. If we enter the courtroom of God looking for fairness and justice, we need to be prepared for the inevitable verdict, which will be guilty. You see, you and I, we know ourselves. We know our sin. If God simply based us, based whether we were guilty or innocent, on our obedience to the Ten Commandments, we are all in desperate trouble. Who in this room has never lied? Every one of us, at some point in our life, has lied. Who in this room hasn't taken something that wasn't ours? How many living water pens do you have at your place? Right? Guilty. Who hasn't mistreated our father and mother? I just did it a few minutes ago with my dad. Who of us hasn't lusted after a woman or a man? Who of us hasn't been so angry with someone that that we wished that they were dead? Who of us hasn't looked at the the possession of another person or or more, more likely their life circumstances? And said, I want that. I'm not satisfied with what I got. I want what they have. Who of us hasn't put something else before God? Who of us haven't used the Lord's name as a curse word? We are all guilty of breaking God's perfect law. And as a result, there's not a single one of us who can stand in front of God and say that we're innocent, that we're without sin. And so if we want to receive fairness from God, we need to be prepared to receive hell from God. Fortunately, rather than giving us fairness, God gave us grace. Listen to those beautiful words in 15 and 16 again. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on who I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Do you know how incredibly freeing those words are? Those words, they are life-giving. You and I don't have to earn God's favor. He freely gives it to us. And in his great mercy... He begins to draw us to himself. And he shows us our sin. Because we go through our life so blind to it. But one day God begins to work. And he begins to open our eyes and, and, and show us how far we ultimately are from him. And he exposes our pride. Which makes us think that we're all that when we really aren't all that. And he helps us see that we can't save ourselves. And then he exposes us to the gospel, which introduces us to Jesus. And we respond by repenting of our sin and turning to embrace Jesus in faith. 
And I know how hard that is for some of us to embrace that. I get it. It took me years to get past the idea that there was nothing that I could do to earn my salvation. Everything in my life I earned. Why in the world shouldn't I have to earn my salvation? And it took me years to accept that God is not obligated to draw anyone to himself. God is sovereign over all things. Why in the world wouldn't he be sovereign over over salvation? It took me years to realize that salvation has nothing to do with, with God's fairness and everything to do with God's mercy. It took me years to realize that, that I don't have any idea who God might be drawing to himself. I have no clue who, who, who God is, is calling to be saved. So I have to look at every single person as God is calling them. I don't stand there and, and look at Leonard and say, wow, man, that Leonard, he's got something to, to offer to God. And then I look over here at, at Al and like, there ain't no way God's going to use that dude. Right? I mean, you don't do that. At least you shouldn't do that. It took me years to realize That election doesn't remove human responsibility. We are all still responsible to God for the things that we do, rather whether or not God is drawing us to himself or not. And it took me years to fully embrace that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, from God alone. And it took me years to realize that I don't need to obey God to earn his love, but I obey God because of his love. So if you're struggling with this, you guys, I get this. But hear me out. When it clicks, it is incredibly freeing. God's sovereignty and grace and election, it sets us free to experience God's love and and salvation as they were originally intended, freely given, not earned in any way at all. But it does something else. It provides three very practical benefits. And these three benefits, they're not something new I came up with. There is an amazing pastor by the name of James Montgomery Boyce who died a number of years ago. He pastored a large church in Philadelphia for, it seemed like, forever. And he came up with these three results, and I believe that they are so poignant. The first is this, that living under God's grace results in an attitude of humility. You know, I never understood it. But sometimes when people are exposed to the theological uh, concept of election, they get all arrogant and argumentative. They begin to look down on others who don't believe the same way that they do. I don't get that. How is that possible? It's, it's like they, they found this like amazing truth. And they've they got to tell it to everybody. And, and, and anybody who doesn't get it right away is just foolish and stupid and ignorant. If anything, election should drive us to our knees in humility. 
because we're living completely on God's grace, it teaches us we bring nothing at all to the table. Nothing. There is nothing that we bring. Ephesians 2 says, What for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If I am saved based on anything other than God's grace, no matter how small, I've got a reason to boast. But when I am saved solely because of God's grace, I am overwhelmed with humility. There is no reason why the God of the universe should have ever drawn Mike Leonzo to himself. In my unregenerate state, I was a pig. There was nothing redeemable about me. I bring nothing to the table. I get up here, well, once every three months or something, whatever it is lately. And every time I come up here, I, th- I bring nothing to the table. If God doesn't do something here, th- this, this will be a disaster. It's the same thing with Pastor Ben. We talk about it all the time. How incredibly inadequate we feel. But how fortunate we are because God has called us to do this. I mean, if there is any of us in here who who claim the name of Jesus, we should be completely humbled that God has done what he has done in our lives. Secondly, living under God's grace results in a deep love for God. In 1 John 4, it says, we love God. Because he first loved us. If I have any role in my salvation, then whatever my role is, it diminishes my love for God by that amount. But if I have absolutely no role in my salvation, then my love for God is without bounds. Dr. Boyce put it this way. We did not seek him. He sought us. And when, we, when he sought us, we ran from him. And when he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, we killed him. Yet he still came, and he still elected a great number of disobedient rebels to salvation. How can that not drive us to more fully love God? And finally, living under God's grace results in a passion for evangelism. Now, many people will say, well, hey, if God's drawing people to himself, if God's the one who who makes these uh, choices and decisions, why do I have to evangelize? I mean, I can sit back and, you know, be on the, the recliner of salvation and watch God just work. But that's not how it works. You see, God has ordained the proclamation of the gospel as the very means to which those who he has chosen ultimately come to faith. But more importantly, God's grace working in an election is my only hope of success in any evangelistic effort whatsoever. When when, when I go and and I share my my faith with, with another person, If it's all based on me and and how good I am, that person is never coming to eternity. It's just not happening. And Ephesians 2 tells us that that prior to coming to faith in Christ, 
that we were, we, we were all dead in our sins and trespasses, that our hearts were hardened to the things of God. So without God doing something first, when I approach someone and I go to share the gospel with them, if God hasn't done some kind of work, they're blind, they're deaf, and they've got a heart of stone, they're not going to listen to a thing that I have to say. But if God has been doing the work behind the scenes, just like Paul, the scales will be removed and that heart of stone will have been turned into a heart of flesh. Guys, I know, I know this is a lot to process. Uh, I just spent an hour talking to you and, and I pray that, that, that God would, would speak deep into your hearts. That I pray that you would, would understand that, that what I share here is is from a heart of humility uh, that, that you, you might not buy this, you might not agree with this. Uh, I want you to know that, that I would love to chat about this. Pastor Ben would love to chat about this. Bongo would love to chat about this. I mean, we, we would love to sit down and talk with you. Uh, probably after the service is not an appropriate time to do it. It's probably not enough time. But call into the office uh, you know, make an appointment, we'll sit down and, and we'll chat. But this doctrine, you guys, it needs to be held humbly. If you get this and you're using this to beat the crud out of somebody else, you are abusing one of the most beautiful things in all of Scripture. And if that's the case, you need to fall on your face and you need to cry out to God for forgiveness for doing that. Uh, so let me pray and, uh, and then we'll... we'll finish uh, with a worship song. Uh, Lord God, uh, we love you. And Lord, we confess to you that, that we fall short of your glory all of the time. And Father, we are, are so thankful that, that, that salvation comes through grace alone, through faith alone. And, and, and Lord, we, we, we don't understand why you would, would want us in your kingdom yet you use us. We don't understand, Heavenly Father, why you would even use us to, to share the gospel with someone else, but you do that. Father, we don't understand how, how you take uh, broken lives and you make them new, that the, the pain of our past are, is the, are the things that you use to, to draw us to yourself. God, we don't understand that, but we are thankful for that. And Lord, would you give us a heart of love and humility Lord, will we consider others better than ourselves? And Lord, will we be overwhelmed by the grace that you so richly pour out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And it's through your Son's glorious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. <music>